a lot of times what happens is the guy sees the fish flare because how a bass eats is they open their mouth, suck water in, and then clamp on the fly. And not until, you know, if we're not visually watching the event, not until that fish clamps on the fly do we feel the fish. So if you see that fish open its mouth, that's when guys go, oh, they try to set the hook. And all you do is you see that fly just come straight out of the fish's mouth as it clamps down. That was Hogan Brown reminding us that all we need is a little patience. River striper tips and the most diverse state by species today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thank you for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please take a quick moment and visit us on Facebook, wetflyswing.com slash Facebook, and you can connect with the private group there. Just kickstarting the uh, group over there. So come on over and ask a question for an upcoming guest. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Angler's Coffee roasts a full range of coffees with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go tea bag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Angler's has you covered. Head over to wetflyswing.com anglers to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste right now. That's wetflyswing.com anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S, to get going right now. Trestle designs, engineers, and manufactures industry-leading outdoor products and premium apparel. From their patented game-changing telescopic fly rod carrier and their specialized waterproof cases and fly boxes to their magnetic nipper system that are revolutionizing how people snip their line. Please head over to wetflyswing.com trestle to get started today. That's wetflyswing.com trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E to support this podcast and an amazing product and brand today. Hogan Brown, the host of the Barbless Podcast, is here to break down some tips on river stripers. We also get into a little bit of his background on how he first got started guiding and some of the species he's still focused on today. We will discover some great tips, some step-by-step, and we're going to be taken back a little bit back in time to find out who were some of his biggest mentors. So. Without further ado, here is Hogan Brown. How's it going, Hogan? Good, man. How are you? Good. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking a little time to dig into it today. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna probably talk a lot about uh, California with a focus on California, but probably some of the stuff will hopefully apply broadly um, to some other areas. But uh, you got a lot going. You know, obviously it's a diversity of species down there. So I think today we might dig into stripers a, a little bit. Um, but you've also got a podcast going, and that's another big interest for me. Uh, I've been slowly trying to connect with people, and I know Chad and Nick had them on in the past. Yeah, um, but before we get into the Barbless podcast and your you know guiding and everything, take us all the way back real quick to the start of how you got into fly fishing, and then we'll take it back to where you are now. Oh man, okay. So um, I grew up in a little little. I don't know if you'd call it a town. I call it more of like a burg. I think I, it's got a zip code and a post office. So I grew up in uh, Penn Valley, California, which. Um, you know, usually you have to stretch it out about two or three towns for people to really get a visual idea of where it is. But um, 
it's kind of close to Grass Valley, Nevada City. And then Grass Valley, Nevada City is about an hour and a half up in the foothills from Sacramento and then another hour to the top of the mountain to Truckee. So kind of around at the base of the Sierra Nevada foothills and such. And um, I'm an only child and I grew up on about a 20 acre kind of cattle property ranch in the foothills that was kind of backed up to a, a creek called Deer Creek, which is a tributary to the lower Yuba River. And um, both my parents worked a lot. They were my dad was a college counselor and professor and my mom was a fourth grade teacher and I was home alone a lot. And, you know, most of my friends lived in more residential communities and, uh, I didn't have, you know, you couldn't ride your bike anywhere or anything like that. So I I kind of, you know, was, I guess, drawn to things I could do on my own. And, um, I always liked fishing, but very early on, um, the lower Yuba, which Deer Creek dumps into is, uh, heavily restricted wild trout tailwater, which you really only have the option to fly fish it. So it was like, that's what everybody did out there. And that's kind of what I had to learn how to do if I wanted to fish it. So, um, I was probably about 10, 11 years old when I really started like, okay, I'm going to figure this out, you know? And my dad was an outdoors guy. Like we camped and did stuff like that. My mom was super supportive. And so, you know, they kind of threw gasoline on the fire and took me out and stuff. But um, they definitely didn't jump into it as heavy as I did, you know? Cool. So yeah, you got started from an early age and, uh, in the Yuba and we've talked a little bit about the Yuba. We've had, uh, at least one episode and we just did one where we talked about the Sierra Nevada. Now tell me this on the Sierra Nevada. So I always get this screwed up. Sometimes yeah. you hear people say Sierra Nevada, right? It's, is it always the Sierra Nevadas with an S? Man, you know, I always say Nevadas because it's, uh, I think of Nevada. Well, I honestly probably, I say Sierra Nevada is because it's so big, it has to be plural, <laughs> you know, but like, yeah, it's a giant mountain range or whatever. Yeah. But I don't know what Nevada translates to. So I don't know if it is plural Nevada for all I know, Nevada could translate to multiple mountains in some other region. That's right. Okay, good. This is good to know because on that last episode, I was trying to figure out the title and I think I had, I was like, okay, I'll, I think it's Sierra Nevada, but it, I guess yeah. it could be either. So I guess I won't feel bad if somebody calls me out on it. Yeah, no, most people in our region, if you say Sierra Nevada, they're thinking of a beer, not a mountain range. Oh, and I think yeah. when, when people say Sierra Nevadas, that clarifies that it is the mountain geographical region, not the, uh, you know, beer. That's right. That's what it feels to me. Yeah, it feels like Sierra Nevadas is the better way. So okay. <laughs> yeah. So either way, you you grew up in a pretty amazing place and, and and started fishing early, and then and then once you got in, I mean, from there, so you're a kid. When does this become for you? Uh, you know, where you see this like as a business? Oh man, um, I started working in a fly shop. There was a fly shop in downtown Nevada City where I worked. Um, it's now not there anymore. It kind of changed hands and names, but um, Nevada City Anglers was right in downtown Nevada City about. 30 minutes from my house. That's kind of like the town we would go, you know, get groceries and such. And, um, and I was going in there all the time for, I mean, ever since I was young. And then I want to say about 16, 17 years old, a, a gentleman bought it, uh, by the name of Jeremy Gray. And he bought it from the original owner who realistically needed to make money at the fly shop to pay his bills. And Jeremy bought it and his wife, was a uh, an exec at Intel, I think, at the time in Granite Bay, and he had just 
left a, a really high stress job at the Federal Reserve in San Francisco. So the fly shop, I think, was kind of his dream. And basically, he needed someone to like answer the phone and pretend that he was working <laughs> while he went fishing. And so, you know, I started working there on Sundays and a couple days after school during the week and such. And, um, you know, that was kind of the beginning of, I guess, my first job in the fly fishing industry. And Jeremy and a gentleman by the name of Ralph Wood there really kind of helped me along in seeing it is not necessarily a hobby, but a way to make money when they, you know, Jeremy thought I should get a guide license. And that was a big, like, I guess the first thing that I was like, wow, you know, maybe I'm like, I don't want to say better at this than other people, but good enough to make a living at this or like make more money than, you know, what he's paying me to vacuum the place and, you know, take care of the cat when he's not there. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I got my guide license right around 17, 18 years old. And that was, you know, you start guiding at that age and you know, your, your other buddies are making like five bucks an hour, you know, at the movie theater or flipping burgers. And I remember I was making, you know, two seventy five, three hundred dollars $300 a day. And that was a big, like, Oh wow. Okay. Let's do this. So that was it. That was it. So you jumped into guiding and what was that? Take us there. Like, it sounds like you just jumped into it and you felt good because I know I've heard a lot of guide stories where people sometimes love it and sometimes not so much, but did you like right away? It feels, it sounds like you just knew it was the thing. Yeah. You know, um, I just, at the time I was, you know, I went to high school and I, I didn't get into any big colleges or nothing. So I was just kind of taking community college classes, right. My local community college. And, you know, I know exactly what you're saying. And, and I, I just, I jumped into it and I didn't never even thought about it. Yeah. I, I was so hungry to learn everything I could. I saw fly fishing as just this, my, and I still see it this way, you know, 30 some years later or whatever, like this unending puzzle of something that I need to figure out and learn, you know, it, it was one of those few things in my life that just presented this continuous challenge. Not that a lot of things don't present challenges, but it was one of those things that presented a challenge and that I, I could actually figure out, like I wasn't a really good student. I mean, I, I was a decent athlete, but I was never, you know, I was middle of the pack and never seemed to get out what I put in. And, you know, fly fishing really felt like this thing that like I was putting in the effort and I was really getting a lot out of it. And guiding just afforded you that opportunity to spend more and more and more time on the water, you know, and that's all I really wanted to do at that stage in my life. I just wanted to be on the water. That's cool. Yeah. That's yeah. a really cool story because you, yeah, I mean, you found that thing that you're kind of, you're passionate that you're good at and you know, who, if you're getting into fly fishing, doesn't want to get more time on the water. And then, and then once you got into the guiding, how did you, because you do have so many species, you know, there's so many things to do in California throughout the whole year, right? How did you, when you first got going, were you just starting out with like a trout sort of thing or how, how did that all evolve? Because now you're like the striper, right? Is the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I had a lot of good mentors in my life coming up in the industry that really kind of pointed me in the direction. And, you know, Jeremy and Ralph would, you know, Ralph was a wade fishing guide in, uh, and guided the, the North Fork of the Yuba a lot. And I started guiding the North Fork of the Yuba a lot and spending time on that and doing a lot of walk and wade stuff. But, you know, the reality is in our area that the, the kind of the big 
the, the place people wanted to go was the lower Yuba River. That was the, you know, it's a trophy tailwater, two hours from Sacramento, hour and a half from Sacramento, and, you know, two and a half hours from the Bay Area. And um, Jeremy and a, a buddy of his, Dennis Carlson, started teaching me how to row a drift boat. And that was, you know, that kind of put me on the course of being a, a lower Yuba drift boat guide. And it was, you know, I was out there with a lot of guys that were 20 years older than me. And, you know, there was not a lot of young people in fly fishing at the, the late nineties, you know, early two thousands. Um, and so I kind of had to cut my teeth among some of the, as I say, gruffer gentlemen on the river. And, um, when I moved to, I moved to Chico, California in 2001, to, I, I finally got enough credits to leave the junior college realm and, uh, went to Chico state. Um, the, probably the biggest trout fishery in the state is the lower Sacramento River in Redding. And so I started working at a fly shop in Chico and met uh, a man by the name of Will Turek and then another gentleman, Jason Lozano. And these two guys really kind of took me under the wing and kind of gave me that that graduate course in guiding. And I kind of went to trout fishing because that's where the trips were, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that's what people wanted to do. Trout and steelhead, you know, as much as I do other things, trout and steelhead will always be king in the fly fishing industry. So, mm -hmm. um, that's just where the money was. And, you know, as, as the years went on, I started to realize that, you know, driving 200 miles a day round trip and rowing a boat for eight or nine hours is probably not the most sustainable, um, way to make a living, be a good husband, be a good father. And, I realized as I watched some of the older gentlemen that I had guided with, you know, your body starts to break down, you know, um, divorces happen if you're living away from home for months at a time. And I, I started to realize that like, there, there's gotta be a different way to do this. And at the time, probably, um, another one of my really, I guess, dear friends and close mentors, a man by the name of Mike Costello, who I was guiding with for at the time started to really transition his business to striper fishing in the Delta because that's where he worked. That's where he lived. And, you know, he wanted to be home for baseball practice, home for dinner and realized, I don't know if he ever verbalized it, but the idea of running a trolling motor in the Delta is a whole lot easier than, you know, back rowing a drift boat up and down the lower sack. And I kind of watched how he was starting to shape his life with a young child and, you know, a guy whose family was important to him. And I, you know, I was on one side, you're watching guys get divorces and lose their families. And you're watching Mike make these moves to solidify his families. And I thought, you know, I got to figure out how to guide minutes from my house and in a boat that doesn't beat my body up every day. And, you know, try to figure out how to be a good husband and a family man and still spend all that time on the water that I wanted. So that's led me to striper and bass and a lot of stuff that are really close there you go that's a sounds like a, a smart move <laughs> smart move for your body and for your family it sounds smart now but i mean it was um it was not it was a gamble at the time right like you know um the fisheries that i guide no one guided them no one even really thought they were viable fisheries so oh wow are yeah. people now are there people guiding it now is it pretty popular there's a couple of us that um you know do it. Um, they're all kind of guys. We all work together for guys that I've kind of brought under and shown the fisheries and, you know, um, it's a high learning curve and it's a high cost of entry, 
you know, a big boat. Mm, you have to have a boat. You got to have a boat. You got to have a captain's license. You got to, right. you know, you got, there's some hoops, you know, that, um, you got to jump through and that, you know, it's a big jump. You know, a lot of fly fishermen, um, you know, oh yeah, they, they if you ask them, they oh yeah, I fish for bass. But you know, most fly fishermen go bass fishing when the fishing's good. <laughs> you know, um, to really say I'm going to be a bass guide and you know guide five to seven days a week and put people on fish every single day that's that's a big mental jump from being a trout guide. Oh right, that's a whole different skill set. Is it when you compare it to a trout guide? I mean, the level of difficulty is is it just much much higher for being a guide for stripers? I think so. But part of it is because, you know, I would say if you were, you know, it's kind of like if you're a, if you're a sprinter and then all of a sudden somebody says you need to be a, a shot put thrower, like you just don't have the skill set going in, you know? Um, most of us that grew up trout fishing or, or our whole fishing reference is trout with a fly rod. Um, it's a big shift to bass species guiding, you know? I always kind of tell people, you know, like bass species, there's, there's times when they just won't eat. Like you could put a bleeding dead crayfish minnow in front of them and they won't eat it, you know? Um, (laughs) and with, with trout, I've always figured like, we're going to find a few fish that are going to jump on a fly. Like we're, we can, you know, we can find the pattern, find the fish. We'll find them. You know, there's going to be some really tough days as we all have, but like, on most of our fisheries, we can find a fish or two on a given day. You know, there's, there's days where the bass just don't eat, you know, you can find them. They're there. You see, you know, yeah. so it's not going to take. Yeah. I just, I, I don't want to upset trout fishermen, but I mean, it was hard for me. It was a lot harder for me to figure out bass fishing than it was trout fishing. Gotcha. And, and when they don't eat, uh, are you knowing that kind of, um, a little ahead are you out there on a trip and all of a sudden you realize oh man they're not eating today is that something that how do you deal with that if that happens yeah you know i mean it, big things with bass species that um i've you know we deal a lot with barometric pressure light conditions um you know you can kind of look at the barometer in those transitional seasons in the spring and the fall and kind of know what's going to happen you know but there's definitely days in the summer when the weather's been beautifully stable for months. And then all of a sudden you're like, they ain't eating today. And, um, the more time I think with any fishing, the, the thing that the good guides, the new guides, you know, there's, there's young guides that just have great instincts. And then there's guys that have been on the water that have massive amounts of encyclopedic reference of what to do and what to try, you know? And, um, you know, when the fishing gets tough, we just start trying some of that stuff. There's ways to find them and find fish that are going to eat, but there's definitely days, you know, where we don't get them to eat. Yeah. You don't get them to eat. So if somebody is listening now and they're, you know, there's probably some people listening that are interested in getting a trip, getting a guide. If they weren't, you know, is there another way to do it? Like, could somebody actually, it sounds like you need a boat. Um, are there other boats you could use? Like, describe that. If somebody likes the DIY style, is that doable? Oh yeah, sure. Like if you like to get out and do it on your own, you know, it's, um, it's definitely not a wade fishery. It's a really big river though. There are some spots that you could get out and wade. And if the, if the fish have moved into that kind of feeding zone, you could have a, you know, you could have a hell of a, an afternoon or an evening or whatever. But as to like using your own boat, I mean, if you're a competent jet boat driver, you could probably figure it out. But again, I, I would not 
you know, don't put my recommendation on that just no. based on the safety requirements. Yeah. Cause you got tides and all sorts of stuff going on. Well, we don't have tides in the river. It's just, I mean, it's a, you know, we're, we're well up from any tidal and. Oh, you're, yeah, yeah. So you're up that. So you're basically dealing with, this is just normal. Yeah. Big river, big water. Yeah. Big river. You know, like the biggest thing that, um, you know, even if you're a competent jet boat pilot in our river, where a lot of people is, you know, dragging a trolling motor down the river's kind of a dangerous thing with all the snags and rocks and you know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. um, you know what a lot of people do that are, you know, maybe don't have a jet boat or not, you know, they're, or I guess I would say I'm, I'm nervous running a jet boat on any river that I haven't been on just cause yeah. oh, you know, yeah. I got a good, good amount of, I guess, logical fear to it, but, <laughs> uh, there's floats you can do, you know, if you have a drift boat or a, a kayak, a lot of guys kayak fish the river. Um, you know, there's plenty of little boat ramps and car top boat ramps that you can put your, uh, put your watercraft into. And that's a, very safe way to get down the river. Gotcha. That said, there's definitely dead water, you know, and having a kicker. Yeah. Kayak's a little easier to row than a drift boat, but yeah. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Fly Fishing Film Tour is back. Don't miss this year's 2022 F3T as it returns to theaters near you for another big season. For me, I remember that first time I went to an F3T event early on as we were getting the podcast started and rolling. It was such a cool event. Uh, I met uh, Elliot from the Drake podcast, was at that event, talked to him backstage, and the bonus was hanging out with the friends with a beer and watching some great anglers, filmmakers, and storytellers on the big screen. I'm really excited to get back on these local events and proud to have F3T as a sponsor this year. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash F3T to find a show near you and get a super dose of inspiration as you plan for your next big fishing trip. That's wetflyswing.com slash F3T or head over to flyfilmtour.com. Boom. Now back to the show. You know, the kayak is, I mean, I've, I've seen some of these kayaks, right? They got all sorts of like, uh, you know, bling they throw on them, motors and everything Oh, else. gosh. Yeah, 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 for sure. You could, totally could. Yeah, you, I could see somebody out there with the badass uh, kayak that's just doing whatever. He's got everything and he's going for stripers. Is that, do you ever see that? Do you see uh, somebody with a kayak out there like hooking a striper? Oh, yeah. There's some, there's some, um, and by no means do the dudes on the river have the really blinged out fishing kayaks. They're usually, you know, kind of the the young cagey kids that are going to the Chico state in town or like, you know, they, they've, they got some beater kayak that they bought off Craigslist and like, sure. You know, you kind (laughs) of look at them and you're like, all right, yeah, that, that, that that could make it. Yeah. That kid's definitely ditched class a few times to do this. He knows what's up, you know? Yeah. You, we see a lot of the tricked out kayaks on some of the lakes we guide. So, Huh. Was that you back in the day on the uh, ditching class to go fishing? Oh or? yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I ended up getting a college degree, but it was in history. So, I mean, you basically just had to read and kind of remember stuff. And But uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time on the water. I guided a ton, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, I get to fish, I, I guess I got to fish a lot, you know, and I, I fished a lot, but like, you know, I was going to class two days a week and guiding, you know, four to five days a week. Like there, there was not, I was kind of paying my own way, doing my own thing. And, you know, I had taken so long to get through school that, you know, the idea of having parents, you were in it. Yeah. The idea of having my parents pay for it was not really, I didn't feel good about that since I wasted a whole lot of their money early on. So 
Gotcha. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, if I ditched class, I was going to do it to guide. So yeah, you were doing it. You were guiding it. And this is like you said, at 17, you were, you were full on guiding at 17. Yeah, I was 17, 18. I, I really forget. I mean, there was a, there was an area there where I was probably shouldn't be guiding, but I was going and guiding and getting paid under the table and doing all those things you do at a small fly shop in a small town. So. Yep. Yep. Doing yeah. it, just doing it, making it happen. Nice. Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, you know, I want to dig into a little more on the river stripers and sure. that whole thing and, and we'll kind of let it go. Let's see where, what other topics we can dig into, but take me to the, before we get into it, the barbless podcast, because I, yeah. I you know, definitely I met Nick, uh, up at IFTD a few years ago and, or, uh, sorry, I met uh, Chad and, and I know Nick, we had him on the podcast. Um, talk about how that came to be. I, I cause I don't know that story. Oh, sure. So I've known Nick, me and Nick, gosh, so Nick's a pretty, that whole story I just told, uh, Nick went to Chico state, worked in a, yeah, oh, wow. yeah, there's two fly shops in Chico. I worked at one, Nick worked at the other. Um, I think me and Nick have known each other probably for 20 years and kind of, you know, just bopped along through life kind of, you know, in the same town in the same kind of area. Um, I met Chad through Nick when they started up the barbless podcast and, um, you know, Chad's an incredibly intelligent human being, probably yep. one of the most successful and smartest people I know. And, uh, you know, they wanted to start the podcast and I said, Hey man, I'll, I'll support you guys in any way. This is great. You know, help you know, I'll be on it, help you out, introduce you to people, give you a list of cool people, you know, whatever. And so it just kind of started out as like two of your buddies doing something that was pretty cool and just trying to help them and support them. And then maybe a year or so ago, two years ago, I don't know, I forget, uh, Chad, you know, asked me, he's like, Hey, would you want to come and host some episodes? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have time to do anything else, but I'll show up and talk. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I told him at the time, I was like, you know, you guys do some pretty, pretty high level stuff. Like I always told those guys, I'm like, dude, your podcast, like I can't multitask and your podcast, like I got to listen to. And, uh, you know, they're dense. There's information like you do your homework and like there's, it, there's a lot of effort and time put into it. And that's not going to be my podcast. Like I'm going to call my buddies and BS with them. And we're going to talk about interesting stuff. And they're Which like, great. Yeah. yeah. And like, so they were like, yeah, that'd be awesome. So I started hosting some podcasts with those guys and then you know, life kind of took those guys in different directions. Nick had his second kid and you know nick's got two kids in diapers two boys which oh, i wow. you know and chad was looking to make a change he wanted to get out of california he was going to move to arizona and chad was just like hey do you want to take over the podcast and i'm like wow that sounds like a ton of work but you know i kind of wanted to live on and you know mm -hmm. continue to be what it is and so i you know Chad dropped off a box of stuff in my house and really didn't give me much of a choice. So I was like, <laughs> okay, well, I guess I'm going to do this. And, you know, I've changed it. It's not, I can't put in the time and energy to it as you probably, you know, know what it takes that Chad and Nick put into it. You know, I've, I've basically, and I'm pretty upfront about that. Like I've been in the fly fishing industry now well over 20 years. And I basically, try to bring on interesting guests that I've met in the industry and kind of new people too, that are doing cool new stuff, you know, um, mm -hmm. 
so much of fly fishing is, you know, I guess, you know, the calendar image or the, you know, if you thumb through Instagram, you know, the average angler is going to see a hundred pictures of stuff that they don't have the money to go do, (laughs) you know what I mean? And, uh, I kind of try to go against the grain and bring people on that are doing new and interesting and different stuff and doing stuff that we can all do or, you know, so. Nice. No, I'm glad you uh, kept it going. I, I know when Chad, because we were talking there and he was, uh, you know, he was going big on the podcast and then, it, you know, it kind of came quick. It was like, oh, it's like he's heading out. And I was, yeah, I was a little worried because you always hate to see a good uh, podcast go away, you know? I yeah. Think, uh, yeah. So it's good to see you kept it going. Has it been, you know, now that you got it rolling a little bit, are you doing, um, are you doing like every uh, biweekly or how are you doing? Your yeah. Life? You know, I, I was, I was doing one every, every two weeks and, um, I'm kind of back on that. Um, it's, it's one of those things where like, if it becomes work, it's not fun. Yep. And, um, you know, my goal is to put one out every two weeks, but you know, life and family and work come up. I, 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 it's a soft release date, I guess, (laughs) you know? So, um, I took a few weeks off over Thanksgiving. I got a few in the can. I'll probably pump out over the next couple of weeks and then, you know, who knows? We'll see. I try to make it fun. So if it's not fun and it's work then defeats the purpose. Nice. Nice. What is one? I'm just curious, like episodes wise that you've done solo that has been one that's really resonated with, you know, your, either your listeners or just yourself that you remember is there. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. I always gravitate towards people doing different stuff and, you know, finding their own way and doing their own thing. And, um, I talked to George Ravel, a good buddy that I knew for a long time. And, you know, if George Ravel grew up in Redding, California, and now owns a fly shop in San Francisco, like in the heart, heart of the city. And, um, one of George's things that he told me when he, right around the time he built the shop, I mean, it's his shop. He didn't buy it from anybody. Um, was that his goal was to get people to fish locally, not drive hours out of the city. Oh, so, wow. His whole thing is to, you know, pioneer surf fishing underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and all these crazy little backwaters of the San Francisco Bay that people can, you know, take BART to and buses to and, you know, and he's done it. I mean, he's probably grown fly fishing within the city of San Francisco exponentially over, you know, the course of his time running the fly shop because he's created access that people can go fish like before work or on a Saturday morning, or, you know, they don't have to, you know, drive three hours out of the city to find fishable water. So, um, that one, listening to George talk about that and how he did that was really interesting. Um, then another one, it, I, I it's going to release this week. I interviewed these guys. They create these videos called the short bus diaries. And uh, interviewed a guy by the name of Adam, who's in charge of them. And these guys buy short bus school buses off Craigslist and completely retrofish them and then go live and fish out of them for like months at a time. Did you say retrofish or retrofit? Retrofit. Like they gut these school buses and turn them into, you know, they they basically turn them into like RV, (laughs) you know. That's amazing. And then go live and fish out of them for weeks and months at a time. That's amazing. I think the word that came to me, I thought I heard you say was retrofish, no. which actually might be a new word we could create here. 
yeah, they definitely fish. I don't know how yeah. retro fish they do, but uh, yeah. So Chad and Nick's podcast was super educational and they found these incredible guests and yeah, they had species they dug into like, do you do the, like the, the species biology stuff? I, you know, I do to some degree, but it's like, those aren't the podcasts that I enjoy listening to. So those aren't the podcasts that I do, you know, I mean, I totally get it, but like my podcast listening is while I'm doing like three other things, right? Like, um, and I just don't have the bandwidth or the time because those podcasts, like, it's like reading a book. Like you want to sit there and listen to that thing. Like I've found with certain podcasts they did, I'd take notes. I mean, it was like, rehashing a college lecture yeah (laughs) yeah and that's great and hugely informational but it takes disgusting amounts of work and it's not the type of podcast that like i listen to on an average basis so it's just not the type that i've made i always think of it i've said this before but the three e's you know when you're podcasting or probably doing anything but you know you got to have kind of at least a couple well you got the educational um entertainment and emotional right so when yeah you're doing an episode you gotta you gotta have at least one if you don't have one of those then you're really in trouble and, and having two is really good if you can get all three then you're like knocked it the episode out of the park right so yeah so you're it sounds like you're going more to the more more to the well there's education i'm sure but also entertaining right you guys are just having a chat and people are listening while they're driving and it's kind of getting to know some new places and absolutely and I, I i always i mean there's definitely an educational point of it of you know the episode with Adam Adams from North Alabama, um, the guy from the short bus diaries and like learning about fishing in North Alabama. Like I, I had no idea, you know, the guy's a really sharp cat and he, I had no idea, but North Alabama has the most species of freshwater fish of any other state. Oh, wow. There's more species of freshwater fish in Alabama than any other state in the union. And it also has more species of crayfish than any other state in the union. So like you throw those two together, like that's a pretty cool state to fish in, you know? And like, so, you know, we didn't break down to the depth that like Nick and Chad used to break down, but like there's definitely educational stuff, you know, in there. Yeah. Yeah. You dig into it. You're probably more just like how I do it. You know, I like to now, you know, we've had spent a good chunk of time. I love hearing the background, like the podcasting, right? This is yeah. for me, it's interesting because I, I have a podcast. I love to listen to how you, how you did it. And then, and also people listening here are probably going to shoot over to the barbless, right? And check out that episode yeah. with, uh, with Adam, right? So, because it sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That'll go up. That'll go up Monday, assuming nothing catastrophic happens or, uh, excuse me, Wednesday. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we're, these are always retro because so we're doing totally. this. This episode won't go live probably for a month and a half or something like that. Gotcha. But uh, no, this is great. Um, well, let's dig into something on Tribe just because I know some people are going to be, they're going to want to hear some some, uh, some of that educational stuff. Sure, sure. Um, so take us, in, it sounds like, you know, a big part of this is obviously if you want to do it right, you know, calling you or somebody who could really get you out there, but there's a few other ways to do it. Let's just bring it to the water and talk. If somebody was coming in like tomorrow or out, let's just start there. First of all, you know, talk about timing. So if somebody was going to do yeah. a trip, they called you and they said, Hey, I want to go for stripers in the river. What do you tell them? When, when's the best time? When would they book that trip? So, you know, our stripers in the, in the Sacramento river, there's a, um, a migratory run of fish that comes up out of the bay in the spring. Um, so that's like March, April, May, depending on the spring in Northern California, which is, you know, hitting a moving target on most years. Um, 
And then we have our resident population. So then we have fish that live in the river 365 days out of the year. And the best time that I always tell people is about May through October. Um, best striper fishing usually results when you have consistent weather conditions. So, you know, once you get into that kind of mid to late May through first part of October, that's where you have the most consistent weather conditions throughout the year. You can definitely in September and October start to get into some, you know, barometric swings and pressure fronts coming in. And you can even get into that in the late May, first part of June. But, you know, those are bookends. Um, we fish all winter, but winter is incredibly volatile. You know, um, we're actually having a winter this year in Northern California. So oh, that's right. Yeah. I heard, I heard yeah. you guys are getting some rain. Yeah. Or, well, that's, that's Southern even, right. But yeah, yeah, you get some weather. Yeah. So, I mean, like on a, on a normal winter, the river will blow out from say November to April. You know, you just can't fish it. It's too much rain. We're, we're down in the river system. So, you know, it is a dam controlled river, but you know, the amount of tributaries that dump into it, you know, will blow it out with, you know, for most of the winter. So, um, first of all, timing, I'd say most people shoot in like June, July, August, September, you know? Yep. Okay. So June, July. So yeah, that's good because now we're, we're swinging around, you know, December, January, and it'd be a good time to connect with you and say, Hey, I want to get out there in whatever, June, July, August. What, um, so what do you tell somebody if they, if kind of book a trip now getting ready for that, is there anything they need to be getting prepared for? Oh yeah, sure. No. So, I mean, it, it's, um, the beauty of what we do is it's, you know, it's as close to like big game saltwater fishing as anyone I think can get in a freshwater environment in our area. You know, we throw nine and 10 weight rods with, you know, shooting heads and, you know, big, sometimes heavily weighted, sometimes not flies. And, you know, just that setup right there for most trout anglers is a, is a big jump, right. You know, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, kind of getting comfortable with the bigger rods and the bigger flies and the shooting heads and being able to, you know, cast distance. Our fish are, you know, stripers, unlike largemouth or other types of bass are, not structure oriented feeders. So our fish hunt. So, you know, covering water for a, a hunting fish is huge. You know, it's not bass fishing where you got to put it right on that lily pad and that fish is right under that lily pad. It's, right. you know, you have to cast it out to this flat and there's a school of five fish cruising somewhere in here. And the longer that fly moves through the water, the longer those fish have to find it. So, you know, Distance is important, but, you know, there's a lot of types of fishing in the summer that we do that doesn't require the, the long distance casting. So that's not like a, a hindrance for people. Um, the other thing, the big thing for a lot of our, our guys that come out that are, you know, coming from a trout or steelhead background is the ability to strip set. Um, you have to strip set stripers. You can't lift the rod and trout set them. And, uh, the, the, uh, I guess the tenacity with which you fight and strip set and drive the hook into a striper is usually not something that your average trout angler is comfortable with. I mean, we fish, you know, two aught to four aught hooks with, you know, anywhere from 20 pound to 30 pound test. And, you know, you really, 
you got a strip set of fish and you know, you're not going to break them off. If you break them off, then you know, you tip your cap. So, um, it's a little different game, you know, it's a big game, saltwater fishing in a freshwater environment is what we tell people, you know? So, um, there's sight fishing opportunities, you know, you got to lead fish and, you know, gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think just kind so of, you're getting down. Yeah. You're just polishing up kind of some of those more niche techniques that people honestly, in, in a lot of areas in Northern California or Oregon or Washington, you know, got to get on a plane to go do. Yeah, that's that's the cool thing is they could literally get, yeah. head down there and get a little yeah. bit of that experience and and just so so you know again somebody listening and they're thinking about maybe putting this together so line wise so nine ten and then what line yeah. just, you mentioned the shooting heads like if somebody's going to go grab a line what what would that look like so we run um, you know if you're really going to do it you know one of the beauties of being in a a boat I, I guess good or bad um, you can bring a lot of gear in a boat you know so um, we usually have um, three rods, a client, we have an intermediate shooting head, uh, type three shooting head, and then a type seven shooting head. You know, one of the big things when you're looking at, you know, obviously we have our favorite brands and lines and all that stuff, but one really important thing, um, and I, I bet steelhead fishermen will, will understand this too, is, um, having a line with a braided core, not a mono core. Um, because with a strip set, um, you don't want any flex in that line. You know, um, if you have mono cord fly lines, then there's a huge flex. You'll actually watch the guy as he sets up on the fish, the line will flex. You know? right, right, and right. I, I think that's, I'm not a steelhead guy, but I think that's a thing in steelhead fishing as well on that swing. But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. I think that's cool. And and as far as the companies, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's we can name you know half a dozen great companies. Yeah. But I'm just curious, just so if somebody wanted to grab, what what are you guys? What are the, if they picked up your rod? What would they have on there? Yeah, so a lot of guys, um, the Airflow Sniper lines, okay, were designed by a couple of us here in Northern California, Delta and River Striper guides. So those are kind of, you know, if you pick up any of our rods, they're going to have the Airflow Sniper lines on them, just because. That's great. I love that name. Yeah. That's right. a great name too. The sniper, right? Yep, That's perfect. Yep. <laughs> okay. So they got the sniper, they get, get the rod and then, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And all the leader stuff. That's pretty straightforward. It sounds like, um, yeah. and leader, I guess leader, right? What length, like say you're fishing that sinking, you're just going kind of a short, short leader. Yeah. So we run, you know, it all depends on kind of the water conditions. Usually the lighter, the head, the longer, the leader. Um, mm. so one thing that we do do that's kind of, I, I guess, different is, um, you know, we'll run like 30 pound fluoro off the fly line to a 80 to 115 pound swivel. Um, we run a swivel and then we go from the swivel off to usually anywhere from 15 to 25 pound fluoro. And the swivel is, uh, it does a couple different things. One, it's a break point. Um, for the line, if you get snagged on something, but it, the, the more important thing is it, you know, stripers are big head shakers and rollers, you know, and it allows, uh, this is my theory and a couple of our theories. It, it allows a kind of flex point or a spin point and doesn't allow them to load up on the fly and throw it. So it's harder for them, I think, to throw the fly at the boat usually, mm. um, Gotcha. So the swivel is kind of an important thing. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. 
Togan's Fly Shop, providing superior quality products at an affordable price, an amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fly fishing accessories. Togan's has you covered when looking for unique in-house products, but also supports and supplies materials and tools from other leading fly brands you know and trust. Togan's is now offering their mystery fly tying box, where they simplify the process for you in choosing materials. You're only one click away from these hand-picked subscription tying boxes that are packed with value at almost half the cost. And I recently made a order through Togan's, and the experience was perfect. After a uh, recent trip uh, nipping for trout, I had to replace my tungsten beads and some jig hooks and a few other items. The products arrived in a couple of days from Togan's with a nice little card, a bonus value, and a welcome note from the Togan's family. Since 2005, Togan's has been over-delivering on price and customer service, so it's time to discover for yourself what the buzz is all about. Head over to wetflyswing.com Togan's and take a look at their diverse selection of products today. That's wetflyswing.com T-O-G-E-N-S. Togan's. Okay, now back to the show. Okay, and um, and just give us a couple of flies just so we can round this off. Oh, yeah, sure. So um, if you look at any of the fly shops in northern, really, or central California, anywhere around the Delta, they'll have a fair selection of what we call Delta clousers. Um, okay. You know, it's basically a, kind of a bigger, flashier, um, you know, Bob Clouser style, Clouser minnow tied usually with synthetics maybe some bucktail in there if uh, you're really going to bulk it up. But, um, you know, a lot of the Puglisi style flies we fish. Um, and to be honest, there's a lot of the flies we fish are tied locally or, you know, patterns that we've swapped with each other. There's just, it's such a, a niche market within the world of fly fishing to, you know, walk into a fly shop and have a umqua this or a, you know, Rio flies tie one. It's, um, there's just not enough people doing it, but, um, you go in, you know, George in the San Francisco has, a uh, probably one of the best, most innovative guys is a guy by the name of Steve or, uh, Steve Adachi. He ties some flies for George, you know, any, you know, Dan Blanton was kind of the father of a lot of the, the flies for the Delta and stuff. So, I mean, the, the Blanton whistler, any of that stuff, works, you know? Okay. All right. You know, this is perfect. We, uh, yeah, definitely lots of people we haven't had on the show, but we did have uh, uh, Enrico uh, Puglisi on, yeah. I guess, episode 210. So we talked a little bit about his flies and how that came to be a pretty cool story there. Yeah, we fish a lot of his flies in the dead of summer. We sight fish a lot with Puglisi's flies. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, and then take us now on the water. So sure. give us a little rundown. So we got the gear. How are you guys? Are you like just trolling slowly up, down? Like, how are you, how do you find the fish? All that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, we run, we run big, uh, my boat, we have a couple, all of us that usually have a couple different boats, but there's really only at this point, there's really only two of us that do it. Me and my partner, Chuck Ragan, and we have, you know, smaller skiffs, like 17 foot skiffs. And then we have our big boats, our 22 and 20 foot boats. And, you know, you'll put on the boat ramp, put in a boat ramp and blast up or down river and start fishing certain spots based on the time of day, but you're side drifting, you know, so you're drifting down usually a, a bank at some distance away from the bank or an, a big flat that cuts into the bank and you're, you know, casting and stripping into stripping buckets, you know, sometimes double hand salt strip style, sometimes, you know, 
real ticketing, tease them in with a lighter fly and a lighter line. You know, sometimes you'll come in, you know, behind a big root ball and have to throw it up behind the root ball, like streamer fishing for trout, you know? Oh, wow. Are these different than, because you mentioned that some, they're not necessarily cover oriented like a bass, but they still do occasionally you target, I guess I think of that, like, how do you find those fishes or is it just something that you've over years of dialed in where they are? Oh yeah, no. So, so how do we find, you know, the, we basically work up the food chain first. So, you know, we basically work up the food chain. I mean, we spend stripers go to places in the river to eat. So we basically start at the bottom, which is weeds and, you know, weeds and basically timber and such like that, that, you know, house macroinvertebrates and microorganisms. And we, then we find the, you know, the smaller fish, then we find the pike minnows and the bluegill and we kind of work our way up. And, you know, there's areas where it's like, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, bait, you know, we talk a lot about of, you know, Hey, there's a big ball of pike minnow in, you know, Nichols slough. And it's, it's not that there's a big ball of stripers in Nichols slough. It's that there's bait there and stripers find bait, <laughs> you know? So, you know, we're basically fishing areas that our fish are going to go to feed. So, um, you know, getting a striper to hit a fly is not always the easiest thing. And so like, you know, you can, a lot of gear anglers will just, you know, drop anchor in a deep hole and soak a sardine in the bottom of the hole and wait for a striper to run into it and eat it. But, you know, a striper down in deep water is not an actively feeding striper. You know, the, a big 30, 40 pound striper may only eat once a week or twice a week, you know? So where we go is we try to target areas where these fish are going to go to eat. So we're that we are fishing up for actively feeding fish. Gotcha. So, um, you know, you may hit a flat or a big bank with a bunch of snags on it and catch no fish. And then you roll into a weed flat where there's a big hard weed edge and you, you know, just molly hawk them. You know, it, it, oh, wow. it's a lot of covering water. Yeah, it's a lot of covering water. You know, there's definitely days where it's every spot we hit, we catch a couple fish. And then there's days where we fish 10 spots and then, you know, we hook three 20 pound fish in one spot. Oh, wow. And when you're going down, so describe the side drifting a little bit. Is this something where you're kind of uh, idling in the river or how, how are you doing that? No, no. So you're a lot of times it all depends on the current we're in, but you know, we run a, a bow mount trolling motor. And so a lot of times you're drifting with the current and kind of keeping the boat at the same speed of the current, like you would like probably for a trout angler. It's yeah. Like rowing back rowing. Yeah. It's very similar to fishing streamers, you know, casting out, stripping it in, um, you know, fishing a bank in a bass boat on a lake, you know, cast strip, cast strip, you know, Gotcha. So there's a lot of, it sounds like there's a lot of diversity in what you're doing out there. It's a, a little bit of everything as far as you're, there's not one technique. Oh no, absolutely not. And it's a, it's a river. I mean, it's the, one of the, it's the largest river in the state and incredibly diverse, you know, I mean, we'll fish it at, you know, I mean, we're fishing 22 foot boats up and down it. I mean, it's a big, big waterway. Are you guys, um, catching like other species other than uh, stripers out there while you're doing this? Oh yeah. We catch all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's smallmouth bass, largemouth bass, spotted bass, carp, salmon. We catch salmon, steelhead, you know, uh, we catch all sorts of stuff. So 
That's amazing. So, yeah. so you're so you're out there. I mean, you could. I mean, is it more like most of them are stripers, or are you just kind of? It's a any cast is kind of you never know. Um, it kind of depends on the the time of year and like you know. I mean, we spend so much time out there that like we kind of know. Like, there's definitely big. Oh, right. There's big sloughs where it's like, okay, we're gonna go in here and catch some largemouth, or there's creek mouths where you're like, okay, the smallmouth are in there. There's carp flats where it's like, oh, let's go carp fishing. Um, there's definitely spots when the salmon are in there where the salmon will surprise you. You know, I, I salmon will eat uh, a clouser minnow, like a striper eats a clouser minnow. It's, you know, so, you know, you'll set up on a fish and all of a sudden it's a, you know, 30 pound king salmon and you got, you know, a king on your line where you thought you had a, a striper. Um, That's crazy. There's a a native species in there called pike minnows. You know, we get some enormous pike minnows. You know, you'll catch 15 pound pike minnows that, you know, just, you know, are voracious fish. So, um, that's crazy. Yeah. You you never know, man. I mean, it's, you never know, which I've caught catfish. I mean, (laughs) you catch all sorts of stuff. So it's cool that way. You know, I mean, it's an incredibly diverse, healthy fishery that, you never know what you're going to get. That's cool. And, and it's a good, like you said, if you go out the June, July, August, you're getting some pretty good weather. Oh yeah. It's, you know, it's hot in the summer. I mean, I, I wouldn't kid anybody. I mean, it's hot in Northern California in the summer, but the, the beauty of striper fishing is the hotter it is, usually the better the fishing is. So. Oh, the better, the better the comics. Yeah. I mean, we fish seven to three usually in the summer, you know, 7am to 3pm. So we get off before the, you know, the scorching part of the day, but most of your big fish come. 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Gotcha. And what are your, and I'm just curious, boat wise, we, we did a whole series on like drift boats, but yeah. I'm, I'm curious, what, what are your, what's your boat? What's like a name? Give me, I'm just curious to, so we can get a picture of it. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, a lot of us run, most people on the river are going to run, you know, lows or G3s, um, bigger center console style, gotcha. you know, flat bottom. Like a boat you could take a oh, flat bottom, but so you wouldn't really be taking this out in the ocean. No, 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 no. Um, as you get into it, I had a boat built by a builder in Southern Oregon, Rogue Jet Boat Works. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. So I have a, uh, I think I'm actually, I, I, if I'm not the first, I'm the second, <laughs> you know, guy that they built or a fly fishing guide that they built like a center console style boat for. So flat and flat, like almost flat. No, no. I mean, mine's a, mine's 22 foot with a 225 on it. And, you know, it's, oh, an, yeah, it's a big, yeah, it's a 10 degree boat, eight degree, 10 degree. I forget, but I mean, I could take my boat out in the bay or something like that, but you don't want to take a jet out anywhere where there's weeds or oh, anything, yeah. you know, but, oh, gotcha. Yeah. This is a, so you're running a jet. Yeah. Yeah. You have to on the river. Yeah. So center console, you know, looks like a bay boat. You know, we basically outfit them. Like if you, if your listeners are familiar with what a bay boat is, it's a deck in the back deck in the front you know, two guys standing, casting, stripping into stripping buckets. So that's cool. So I think we painted the picture a little bit here. Yeah. I mean, basically if they wanted to get out with you, they could just basically bring their own gear or you, it sounds like you have gear for them. Oh yeah. We could, have everything. Yeah. We, you know, most of our guys, you know, the, the uses for nine and 10 weights for most of our clients is uh pretty not very useful. So yeah, we have all the gear people need. Yeah. 
Yeah, the nine and ten weight definitely are the the specialty raw. I mean, the the eight weight, you know, that would be uh, you could use that for steelhead or whatever, right? But it's uh, yeah, we get you know, you can get away with an eight weight, you know, but a lot of people's eight weights are a little, they're usually at least in our neck of the woods, they're like the nine and a half foot eight weights, and that nine and a half foot rod is just nine times out of ten, somebody's gonna break a tip or do something like that. Like the shorter rods gotcha. with the shooting heads are a lot nicer. A lot nicer. And what about the time? So if they are, if you are coming out in the summer mm-hmm. fishing, like you mentioned the pressure, the lighting, stuff like that. When is the best? When do you guys get going? Take like, are you leaving early, later? How are you doing that? No. So the the beauty of the summer is around here, the weather's usually very consistent, right? It's just a degree of hot, you know. So it's either ninety or one hundred and five, you know, or maybe eighty or you know, it's it's very consistent pressure the barometer is usually very consistent um most days we meet at 7 a.m uh at a boat ramp usually anywhere from 5 to 30 minutes out of the town of chico california and then uh you know we usually get off the water about three to four sometime in there you know here the hottest part of the day is usually like four to six p.m so okay um i kind of get off the water before then just because there is a little bit of a lull at that hottest part of the day in the bite and then you know you can stay out till dark. A lot of, a lot of local guys will come out after work and fish till dark. And I try to get off the water before those guys get out there. Yeah, that's cool. And that gives you a kind of a normal, like a, like a nine to five day, right? If you're, if you're kind of, yeah, man, I mean, I'm, I can make soccer practice and, you know, have dinner with the kids and, you know, hang out, be a dad. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, You found that you found that. Is it, do you find that people are more, I think of the bass thing, we've talked about this with a few smallmouth bass episodes where that's, started out as nobody was doing it and now there's like it's really popular especially in the midwest and other areas do you think stripers is going to keep on that where it just kind of and i'm not sure other areas where people are fishing from around the country is this a really i guess there's two questions there is this a really unique fishery and then also do you see this growing well you know northern california has had a strong history of striper fishing you know in the delta and the san francisco bay and even in the rivers during the migratory runs i mean Striper fishing in Northern California is right up there with trout and steelhead. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's not easily accessible to a lot of people. And, um, the river, you know, when I started doing it 15 some years ago, like nobody had, you know, I looked, I'd pull into the boat ramp and pull fry rods out and people looked at me like I just landed on Mars and I was, you know, an alien or something, you know? So, um, the river fishing has definitely grown. It's, it's grown a lot in the conventional world. You know, um, a lot of guys conventionally fish the river for stripers. Um, but they kind of fish different seasons than we do. You know, they're big, they fish a lot in the fall and the winter. Um, cause they're bass guys. Right. And then spring, summer, fall, they're bass fishing. So, oh, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think, I think it's grown. Absolutely. I don't know if the river is going to get any bigger than it has gotten based on the, the cost of entry, right? Gotcha. A boat's not cheap. No, no, yeah, you're talking, yeah, probably whatever those boats are, 50K or even more, right? I mean, some of these boats are out of control. Yeah. It's a lot of money. I definitely think the, the lake bass fishing and the bass fishing on lakes and stuff is is definitely growing in our state. And, you know, I mean, California is in the gear fishing or the bass fishing world, I mean, it's like Alaska is to trout fishing for fly fishermen. You know what I mean? This is, this is where guys want to come to bass fish. So, um, if fly fishermen can kind of 
convert or at least get some some of the fly anglers to kind of pick up and try different things i think it's better for everyone you know yeah and, and by bass you're not just talking stripers you're talking all the different bass species oh i'm you know i'm talking largemouth smallmouth spotted bass i mean we have world records you know you could throw a dart and find a, a spotted guy's caught a world record bass in california yeah it's, it's cool that's cool um, you know, I definitely, we, we dug into it. I'm just curious the rest of your year as you go out there. So you've got this going, I mean, how much of this is stripers and how much are you still doing some other guiding or is this like most of the, what you do now? Um, you know, I, I do a, I do a little bit of marketing for various companies and, uh, you know, try to, Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I run a little small marketing operation and such, and then I'll do that. And then I, uh, I guide for, we spend a lot of our winter months guiding for spotted bass uh, in some of our reservoirs like Lake Orville, Lake Shasta. And then I still spend, you know, I'll be on the lower Yuba this week. I mean, I spend a lot of time guiding my home water. That's probably about the only trout fishing that I, I'll do anymore is guide the lower Yuba just because that's where I grew up. And, you know, I spend some time in the winter on that. Gotcha. Well, maybe we'll... Uh... Maybe we'll leave that one for the next one. Yeah, we'll get for another sure. Yuba for ep- sure. episode in. Um, maybe you could take us out of here. We have a little uh, segment we do sometimes, the, the 222 um, top tips, uh, flies, and sure. resources. Uh, for Let's keep it on uh, the stripers, and we already talked about some flies. So, again, somebody's out there fishing with you or getting ready to do it. Mm-hmm. What, what are a couple of tips you, you would tell somebody if they're kind of trying to get into that first fish? So, if you're fishing, keep your rod tip down and strip through mm-hmm. the fish. That's going to help you on the hook set, you know, fish grabs, keep stripping hard and, um, strip your fly all the way to the boat. Um, they will eat it rod, you know, leader in the rod tip. Oh, wow. So those are the two things is I give the crash course every morning. That's it. That I'm like strip through the fish that keeps you from lifting your rod and strip it all the way into the boat. So you can see the fly. What is that like when you, you strip it all the way into the boat and then a big, like you said, 30 pound, whatever fish eats it. What, what, take us there. What, what's that look like? Oh, it's just utter chaos. I mean, a lot of times, a lot of times it's the client pulling the fly out of the fish's <laughs> mouth versus the fish. Oh, right. So you have to, you have to be careful still. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, basically what happens when you do that is you're going to see this. I mean, you may see a school of 20 five to 10 pounders just pop out of the depths and you're pulling your fly up to cast. Or a lot of times what happens is the guy sees the, the fish flare because how a bass eats is they open their mouth, suck water in and then clamp on the fly. And not until, you know, if we're not visually watching the event, not until that fish clamps on the fly, do we feel the fish? Okay. So if you see that fish open its mouth, that's when guys go, Oh, they try to set the hook. And all you do is you see that fly just come straight out of the fish's mouth as it clamps down. And that's where the heartbreak ensues. So yeah. you got to wait to feel the fish strip through the fish, wait to feel it. So, so wait to feel it. So strip, so you're stripping in and then you're, and then you feel it. Then you really do a big strip set all the way as far as you can. Yeah, then then you hammer hammer him. As I say, you want to lobotomize him. So 
<laughs> That's right. This is cool. And then uh, give us a couple of resources. Obviously, it sounds like there's not maybe a ton, but if you were to send somebody out to somebody, sure, you know, another book, magazine, video, fly shop, whatever, who, where would you send those people? Is there a couple other resources out there that could dig in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if you can find any of it, Mike Costello and John Sherman wrote a really great book. Um, John did all the photography and Mike Costello wrote the book on fly fishing the Delta. Oh, cool. Um, that's a great book out there. I think it's out of print, but you could probably snoop around and find some. Sure. Um, Dan Blanton runs a, a, a website and a message board, which is basically all striper dudes. Many of them, you know, from the older generation with just full of knowledge, you know, um, Dan's a good resource. He's kind of the godfather of it. Um, and, uh, fly fishing specialties in Sacramento kind of sits right in between they sit right on the American river, which is another great striper river. And then, you know, an hour or two to the Delta, you know, I guess Sacramento 45 minutes to the Delta. And then an hour up here, they have all the gear you would possibly need to do any of the striper fishing in Northern California. So there you go. That's great. Awesome. And what about for you? Do you have, uh, I'm not sure if you get out or have any plans to like have another, like a bucket list, uh, destination trip. Do you have anything or do you stick pretty close to home? Man, I, I stick pretty close to home. I, I have a 11 and a 13 year old boy. So like, oh, wow. you know, I, I, we fish every opportunity we can. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I'm not, I feel like there's so much still to learn on the waters that I guide and I fish that I, I just, if I have the opportunity, I just, I go where I go where local cause it, it just still is so interesting to me and so much I feel I can learn, you know? Yeah. It's diverse. Yeah. yeah. You got, you got, you guys are in a cool spot. So, yeah. So nice. Well, uh, yeah. And anything else before we get out here, you want to, you know, if we're thinking about stripers, you want to give a shout out to, or, or maybe even what you have coming in the next uh, year or whatever. No, man. I mean, I, I'll just be out, you know, we're, we're going to go chase some spotted bass today and then, uh, you know, see what the winter holds for California. That's the, you know, that's the big, you know, see how much water we get and see what happens to our lakes and our reservoirs. and. Uh, yeah. You know, the one thing that's always nice about being a bass guide or a striper guide is, uh, you know, those fish species are not as pressured or harmed. They're a little more, they're a little more resilient. drought tolerant and resilient than your, you know, yeah, wild steelhead or wild trout. So I know. Yeah. That is one of those. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of one of those, uh, catch whatever you want to call it crazy things because yeah, as, as you guys see more wildfires out there, yeah. and maybe more, more flooding or whatever it is. It's like, yeah, the, 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 uh, the invasive, you know, I, I mentioned this to, uh, you know, at episode 219, we talked about striper, uh, stripe bass with Al, uh, and, and he mentioned, um, you know, we were just talking about that, how it's essentially, it's not a native species, but he feels like it kind of almost is now, right. It's here. It's, you know, it might as well take advantage of it. Oh yeah. I mean, it's been here for, yeah. I mean, they've been here 150 some years and you know, the thing about California is, you know, even where our native native species live now, whether you want steelhead, trout, salmon, it's not their native waterway. You know, there, there should not be rainbow trout in King salmon in Redding, California when it's 110 degrees, you know? Yeah, there you go. So, gotcha. Yeah, they were so it's the so it's not just the I mean we've changed the humans, right? Have changed things so much that there's really not yeah, any, yeah. The, the, even our quote native species don't live where their native range. So I mean That's it. 
yeah, that's totally it. No, it's 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 good. No, I, I love that uh, you got this going up here. We'll send people out to let's see, uh, yeah, hgbflyfishing.com, right? Yep, that's it. And you can get on all the socials and all that type of stuff from there, or message me, or email me, whatever you want to do. Perfect. All right, uh, Hogan, thanks for your time today. This has been a lot of fun and uh, definitely love that you got the podcast still going and I'll keep up with that and put links to everything we talked about in the show notes and send people your way. So yeah, thanks for taking all the time today. Oh yeah, thanks Dave. Bye-bye. There you go. Hogan Brown, uh, you can find all the show notes today, wetflyswing.com slash 284, 284 found this podcast helpful please share it on facebook uh it'd be great if you could do that uh also you can leave a review for this podcast head over to wetflyswing.com slash love love will get you there easy way to leave a review i want to thank you today for stopping by and checking out the show appreciate your support appreciate uh, everything you do for the podcast and hope i can serve you on a new upcoming episode See you soon, see you on the river, or see you online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.